How much time does the average person spend kissing in their lifetime? Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. And what first lady was the first to win an Emmy Award? All right, I might know that. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side roast. <laughs> Did I hear a snort there? <laughs> I went off the road. Okay. Sorry. You steered off the road. Yeah. Steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective with fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. Well, that is tantalizing, Marcia. What's How that? How much oh. time do we spend kissing in our lifetime? Yep. The average person in an average lifetime. In so, an average lifetime. Yeah. So know. the average kisser is what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and this is according to CBS News, and they should know. Well, you know, <laughs> kissing is like the punctuation of life. You know, if you consider <laughs> life as sentences and paragraphs, kissing is like the punctuation. You don't do it that often, but when you do it, it's very important. It is very it important. It stops the show. <laughs> Just With like some a, guys, yeah. <laughs> not all of them. Some guys, it starts the show. Yeah. Okay, so let me see. Are we talking in terms of hours? How do you I, measure it? I've got it as weeks or minutes or... Oh, my goodness. Weeks. How many weeks a year? Wow. No, How many weeks in, in a, a life- lifetime? In a lifetime do we but, kiss? Wow. I didn't even think it would be weeks. Weeks. Let's say a week. Okay. A week of kissing in a lifetime. Double it. <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> yes. I so we spend tr- two weeks of our yes. life kissing. Or over 20,000 minutes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 20,000 minutes. And, and how many e- kisses last for more than a minute? Most kisses are kind of short. Most kisses, not Most all kisses. Most kisses are, yeah. But once you get going, there's, <laughs> you know, the average person. The <laughs> once a- you get going, I love that. The average person has about 15 kissing partners before finding the one. Oh. But another survey, because I did multiple That's surveys. That's not a euphemism, on- is it? Kissing isn't a euphemism for something else, <laughs> no, is it? No, no. Okay, kissing. we're talking we're about talking kissing. kissing. Okay. Another survey suggests the average person over a lifetime kisses 20 21.5 people. I had that 0.5, and he wasn't that good <laughs> over a lifetime. <laughs> do you ever think about it? We're not talking your sister and your mother here. How many people do you think you've kissed? That guy was a fractional kisser. <laughs> he wasn't even worth a whole point. Wow, that's pretty bad. 21.5. You well, think- you know, there's a lot of pecs. You know, those, like you said, mothers, and you, you yeah, kiss your mom and your those. sisters. We're talking about We're kisses. We're talking real kisses. We're talking kisses. Two weeks in a lifetime. Yeah. Wow, that's a long time to be spending kissing. Yeah. You know, that when they tell you that, they don't say, is that 24 hours, day and night? Well, I assume it is, yeah. Real? That's a lot. That's a lot of kissing. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, that's 20,000 minutes. That's one of the racier questions we've had on this show. <laughs> And thank God it's not a euphemism for something else. Okay. Marsha, which U.S. First Lady was the first to win an Emmy Award? Well, I think it's between... I'll give you choices. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Eleanor Roosevelt, Uh Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. Jackie Kennedy, or Nancy Reagan? I was going to guess Hillary or Michelle, but uh, the first you said, I'll say Hillary. Well... Emmys deal with television, right? Yes. So let me give you that again. Eleanor Roosevelt, Hillary Clinton, Jackie Kennedy, or Nancy Reagan? 
which was the first U.S. First Lady to win an Emmy. Well, would that be Jackie for her White House tour? That's exactly oh, what okay. it was. All right. All right. Yeah, and Jackie Kennedy's... And over here <laughs> is where the president snoozed before he would the go to dinner. The 1962 <laughs> televised tour of the White House earned her an Emmy, making her the first and only First Lady of the United States to ever win that award. Lady Bird Johnson, who was uh, in attendance accepted an award on Kennedy's behalf, and that statue is now displayed at the JFK Presidential Library in Boston, as is the recordings of the first family, which we ran earlier. Yeah, that was earlier. funny. That was that, very that, funny. Then that's one of the Did, funniest routines on that album is that White House tour because of Jackie Kennedy's yeah. breathy delivery. Uh, frankly, I always hated that show because of what I thought was ridiculous East Coast pretension her school, where did she go? I don't know, Bryn Mawr somewhere. They talk like this from the top. And it was just so annoying to me. Uh, you were just a kid at the I know, time and you were annoyed. But it annoyed me then. I don't remember what my parents thought. Did your family watch it? Well, we all watched Everybody that. Everybody watched Everybody it. watched that because nobody at that yeah. time had been to the White House. Yeah, to see the whole thing. And it was brilliant of her to say, let's everybody see the people's house. And it was her idea. And so she organized it. Yeah. And so yeah. that's why she won the Emmy. Yeah, I don't take that away from her. You just, just don't voice. like her breath, <laughs> the breathy voice. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. This is fascinating to me. Can you define, Bob, choromania? It's spelled like chore mania, but it has nothing to do with chores. C-H-O-R-E-M-A-N-I-A. Yeah. Chore mania. Yeah. Not the craziness of doing chores. No. That's what I go into. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I've, I've seen Yeah, you. spring, every yeah. spring, I do the chore mania. I would pronounce this chora mania. Chora mania. Does that help you at all? Chorus? Is it, it's not from singing or anything, is it? No. Chora. You might have missed this in your history reading, Bob, but okay. it was the medieval dancing plague. <laughs> the medieval dancing plague? <laughs> there was a dancing plague? Yes. Yes, I'm not kidding. Okay. It's true. In 1518, between July and September of that year, somewhere between 50 and 400 people actually died from exhaustion when they took up nonstop dancing. <laughs> this happened back in the 19th century, and it also happened back during the uh, the polka craze and all that stuff? Yeah, for sure. It's somewhere between 50 and 400. And uh, wow. it happened in Strasbourg within the Holy Roman Empire, which is now France. And it ended in September as mysteriously as it began. <laughs> Nobody knows what the hell got into those people. But, but they, they danced got... themselves to death. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> and what, what year was that again? 1518. Wow. Okay. Well, this goes back even farther. This is an interesting question. What American actress successfully starred in a film set in the year 1183. A famous American actress yeah. successfully starred in a film that was set in the year 1183. Now, my hint is 1968 is when it came out. Okay. Who was the actress that was able to successfully star in a film set in 1183? <laughs> it's like, really? You think I've seen this movie? Oh, yeah. You've oh. seen it. Oh, Okay. Was this a Mel Brooks film? No, it wasn't that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that would be good. Yeah, like a history of the world or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I don't know. The film was Lion in Winter. Oh. Remember that? Yeah. That was a 1968 historical drama, and it was set on Christmas 1183. 
It starred Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn, and yeah. It, uh, and she Peter, won an award for that, didn't that's she? That's right. It centered on political and personal turmoil among the royal family of Henry II of England, also starring Peter O'Toole. Uh-huh. He was actually the lead actor in that. Yeah. Catherine Hepburn, John Castle, and then two people made their film debuts in that film. Uh-huh. Anthony Hopkins. It was his first movie. His, his first fir- movie? His first movie. <laughs> I'm sorry, my tongue is really fluffy today. You've been licking trading stamps That's, again. It's the first movie. And yeah. then Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton was also in that film. That was the first film yeah. he was in, too. So who can star in a film set in 1183 and make it successful? Catherine Hepburn yeah, can. Yeah, she can do anything. thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, here's another movie question. What movie was one of the biggest losers in Oscar history? It occurred in 1977. It was a ballet movie. Do you remember this one? A ballet movie? Mm-hmm. 1976? 1977. Seven. Was it, oh, was it The Black Swan or something? No, it's called The Turning Point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good movie. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. It didn't win one. Wow. All right, Bob, you'll like this. Okay. Can you name any of the top four misspelled words that employers find on resumes today? Oh, really? Yeah, there's, they got... Uh, oh, God, this is awful when you find one in a resume. Yes, and uh, employers say it's it's a big buzzkill. You know, I used to hire writers, and of course, if I found a misspelled word, that yeah. just disqualified them right Absolutely. away. Absolutely. Yeah. And with spell check, how can this keep happening? Well, now it doesn't make any sense. Back in the day, you could yeah. see why somebody could miss something. Yeah. Let's see, would career be one? <laughs> no, not in the top, uh, what did I say, four? The top four. I'm you know, I, don't, I have no idea. What, okay. where, what are they? Well, this is a survey done by Newsweek.com of employers. These are generally any kind of employee. This is resumes. not writers. Okay, resumes. Right. Mm-hmm. The top misspelled words are experienced. <laughs> I'm an experienced <laughs> this or that. That's a deadly one to mess up. Yes, <laughs> uh, all these are. Successful. There we yeah, go. Very bad, very bad screwing that up. Counseled. That I can see sometimes. Sure, that, sure. That's easy. Judgment. Yeah. And <laughs> as another very bad one, responsible. <laughs> wow, those are all deadly words to misspell on a yeah. resume. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, it's describing your attributes, and they gave some examples of the alternative spellings, and it ain't pretty. Okay, oh, my go goodness. Ahead. Well, that's good. Marcia, I had never thought of this before, so I'm going to ask you. You know the abbreviations MR for Mr. and MRS for Mrs., right? I've heard of that, yes. Now, Mr. is spelled M-I-S-T-E-R, so M and R makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why does the abbreviation for Mrs. MRS have an R? Mrs., that has no R at the is end. Is that from the word mistress? That is exactly really? right. It started out as mistress, and it didn't have a negative connotation. Both terms originate in the 1500s in England. And according to Cambridge University, MRS was the equivalent of MR. Mistress was a term you used instead of mister. It's mister and mistress. Uh And that was usually a female business person or the head of a household. Somebody successful or somebody the head of a household. Okay. The women who took membership in the London companies in the 18th century were all termed mistresses. They were involved in luxury trades and so forth. So they were masters and mistresses of their trades, the people who were in business back then. And then in the 19th century, the abbreviations MR and MRS were also used to identify servants. Think of Downton Abbey. The top servants always had those names. It was Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so. In aristocracy, even our top servants will have names like we have, (laughs) but not the other people. They'll just be Tom or Anna or Daisy. (laughs) Wait, wait. Say that again, that last part. 
the servants in yeah. Downton Abbey. Yeah. The head of the male servants, That's, Mr. Carlson. I see. Head yes. of the female I servants, yeah. Mrs. Hughes. But, but all the rest were just Tom or Anna or Daisy. <laughs> so to sum up the original point I was making, MRS didn't stand for Mrs. Uh-huh. Originally it stood for mistress. And that was a proper term, not a term of derision. We'll find out when that became a negative term shortly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can go into the pronoun debate, too. That's, that's, that'll take you down a rabbit hole. All right. So, you know, I often listen to WGN Radio in Chicago. Yeah. Well, they talked about a survey that was done uh, in Chicago of Gen Z people. Gen Z are born between 1997 and 2012. Okay. And they asked them what they wanted to get them to start coming back to the office. What Get they them needed? back into the office and out of the house after COVID. Okay, so these are, uh, what would you call these, um, benefits? Is that what yes. you mean, like job yes. benefits? Yeah, perks. Benefits, perks. whatever you want to come. Okay. They and want... this is pretty much in just in Chicago, so think big city. I would think they would want some days to be able to work from home. That's not in the top three. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Is it orange juice or maybe <laughs> a bourbon or maybe a Bloody Mary? Uh, <laughs> to start the day uh, now, yeah, there's yeah. an interesting idea. That's what I would say. One on your desk when you There you, you go. Come when in. you get there, the Bloody gosh, Mary's there. Gosh, when Depends it, on what kind of work's done I know in that I place. needed a donut and a cigarette when I was in the newsroom. But <laughs> okay, so what did the new survey of Gen Z's <laughs> say they needed yeah. to get back into the okay. office after uh, COVID? The number one thing they wanted was commuting costs. Okay, and that, that makes sense. And that would include parking costs. Costs, which in Chicago, Loop, uh, that's going to cost you over a thousand a month, right? Well, even there. in Milwaukee, it cost a lot when I was working downtown. Yeah, yeah, it's quite expensive. Number two, they wanted more privacy at the office. Oh, okay. So, what do you sure. think? These people are all working in cubicles, and probably yes. And one, I call those fabric walls. I remember yeah, those. Yeah, yeah. So they want more privacy. And the third one is no dress code. They should be able to wear whatever they want. Depends on the kind of work you do, I think. I mean, really. How much more lax can you get with <laughs> dress code? Oh, Lord. So what are they again? The top or what again? Uh, commuting costs. Okay. Parking costs. Part of the commuting. Okay. Fuel or maybe a train ticket or whatever it takes to get into work. More privacy in their office and dress code. In Chicago, that's the top three things to get me back in the office. So that's what they need to get back in the office. Okay. We'll get back into the show after we take a break. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. We'll be right back. Okay, Boomer. I'm Robert Rickman, host of OK Boomer with Robert. Yes, we like to enlighten you with colorful features, Boomer news, Boomer history, but we will also mystify you. And this one coming up in 24, that's going to be really creepy. That's an astronomer standing at ground zero where the 2017 and 2024 eclipse paths will cross over Carbondale, Illinois, the home of OK Boomer with Robert. And you can find OK Boomer with Robert wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and amazingly, <laughs> I got coffee me. and donuts right here. How did you do that? It just, you magically gave me that. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We do this every week for the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin, and its internet radio station, and then it goes on podcast platforms throughout the world. We'd like to also invite you to visit our website, theofframp.show, where you can subscribe to the program, and then your podcast app will automatically come up with the new show and notify you of that. Marcia, back to mistress and missus. <laughs> when did mistress become a negative term? Any idea? Oh, well, let me see. When they became the wanton woman, right? Uh, I don't know, the 1800s? 
No, in the late 1700s. Okay. By 1755, mistress was already being used sarcastically to refer to the head of a household that happened to be a brothel. Oh, dear. So mistress was a positive term, and then they started saying, oh, she's the mistress of the brothel. <laughs> and that's how it turned into a negative oh, term. Okay. The term's downfall progressed from there, with mistress eventually meaning a woman in a love affair with a married man. Hmm. But originally, it was a good term. Okay. All right. I'm going back to Gen Z one more time. Fortune magazine survey of employers and workers in the UK revealed what percentage, Bob, of people ghost their interviews. In other words, they set an interview and don't show up. You know, I read about this this thing. I read that statistic last week, and I was appalled it's by appalling. it. Appalling. This was something that was horrible when you were hiring and somebody never showed up. That yeah. that happened only once in my whole career. In your whole career. Somebody I was trying to hire yeah. didn't show up. But tell me about this. 93% did not show up for the interview after making the appointment. Really? Yeah. This is in the UK, but I doubt if it's That's much better That's worse than what here. I thought. Yeah. Isn't that horrendous? That how many people set an appointment for an interview for a job and did not show up? 93%. That is outstandingly bad. It's, this is uh, in the UK. Yeah, I'm just, I, I don't think it's much better here. It's a little better than that here, but it's getting bad. And out of those few who do show up, what percentage fail to show up for their first day of work? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Without a phone call, I might add. I don't know how many. 87%. Wow, so it's hard to hire at all in the UK right now. Oh my God. That's terrible. So you hire somebody, and they just don't show up, and they don't tell you why. That's Those numbers are very difficult for me to believe. And, you know, it took me 12 months to get my first job for a newspaper reporter. So apparently, employers aren't that great either in this UK survey, Bob. One in five workers said that prospective employers failed to show up for a phone interview. The, the employers yeah. failed to show up for the phone interview? And 23% of them said they were given a verbal offer for a job and then never heard from them again. I've heard that. That shows you a lot of it's things like, are broken right now. It's quid pro quo. The employers, a lot of them don't care. The employees seem worse. Wouldn't you feel if you were looking for a job and somebody did that to you? Oh, you wouldn't want to work? Yeah, of course you wouldn't. That's so, a, it's just the a worst. A lot of things are broken, like yes, I said. I agree. Okay, one more question on this Mr., Mrs., MR, MRS. When did the term MS first show up? It was being proposed as a neutral term for women. You mean Ms.? Ms., yes. Ah. And neutral term meaning you can't tell from that whether they're single or married. When did that show up? Yeah. Uh, when, did, when was that first proposed? That was in the, I'll say, 70s, 1970s. That's when it showed up. But guess yeah. when it was first proposed? Uh, 1950. 1901. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. The abbreviation MRS did not definitely signify a married woman until 1900. And the following year, 1901, the abbreviation MS was first suggested as a neutral alternative for miss. Did you use that term when you were in our career? When I was single? Yeah. Uh, sometimes. There's no reason to have the term say whether you're single or married. Men don't have to worry about yeah. that. So yeah. why should women? Yeah. So that's right. why I thought MS was a good uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Sometimes I'll use it if it's to my advantage. All right, Bob. It's time for Who Am I? Wow, where did that come from? <laughs> oh, my. Your voice got so big there. Who was the only president for whom English was a second language? Oh, I know that. Martin Van Buren. 
what was his main language? His main language was Dutch. But don't you have to be an American to be president? Yes, he was born an American. His parents came here from the Netherlands, I believe it was. But they spoke at home. They spoke Dutch. And then he learned English as he got older. You're absolutely right, Mr. Smarty Pants. <laughs> I think we've actually had that before. I do, too. Yeah, yeah. He spoke Dutch at home with his wife, too. He was actually the first president born in the United States. Did you know that? That's you, a technicality. Are you sure? Yeah. The United States was brand new when he was born. All the presidents before him, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, they were born before the United States actually existed. But they were born in the state. They were born in the North American continent. Yeah. But they weren't born United States citizens. Okay, fine. Picky, picky, picky. <laughs> All right. This artist was on their way to becoming a doctor. Okay. And then a near-fatal accident changed everything in 1925. Who was it? On the way to becoming a doctor. Yeah. In 1925. Uh-huh. Who am I thinking? I'm not thinking of uh, Picasso. I'm thinking of somebody else there, but in that era. But I can't think of names for some reason right now. It's mm -hmm. not coming to me. It's not coming to me. That's right. That's why I'm here. Bob, it was Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. Oh, really? Yeah. She was on her way to becoming not a painter, but a doctor wow. when tragedy struck on September 17th, 1925. Very unusual for a woman to become a doctor back then. Yeah, it was. And she was on a bus ride, Bob. And she was crushed in a terrifying and near-fatal accident that left her confined to a bed for months and months and wow. months. No longer able to pursue her medical dreams, she turned to painting to cope with the loneliness of recovery, and she discovered a new passion that saw her become one of the most celebrated painters in history. Is that how her eyebrow grew together, I wonder? <laughs> Laying there all those I months? I don't know, Marcia. I guess that's not kind. I didn't know about that. Okay. The unibrow? Oh, you uh, don't? Yeah, know. but I didn't know she was the one who was noted to have it. Okay, yes, gotcha. Yes, that was Frida. What do you got? <laughs> all right. What animated superheroes have a historical marker in the United States? Animated superheroes. Animated superheroes actually have a historical marker in the United States. Who would this be? Would it be Superman? I was going to say Superman. Would it be Kurt? Batman? No, I'd say Superman. Would it be the Teenage Mutant Nin Ninja, Ninja Turtles? Turtles. <laughs> That's who it is. Can you name them all? Yes, I can. That's uh, Donatello, Raphael, Leonardo, and Michelangelo. Very good. Named after Renaissance that's, artists. That's because we have a little boy, right? We did. <laughs> there is a state historical marker at the house where the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were created in Dover, New Hampshire. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah, and that's not all. They're also honored on the street in front of the house. Where did they live in the stories of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Oh, Do you remember that? No. I mean, I don't. I remember this. I remember because I went to like three of those movies with Ben when he was growing yeah, up. okay. <laughs> they lived in the sewer. Oh, that's right. Of course. So on the street in front of the house where the historical marker is in Dover, Delaware, is a decorative manhole also honoring the four turtles. That's great. <laughs> that's very cute. We got to tell Ben that. Okay. That was his favorite. Oh, my God. He loved that, didn't he? Yes, he did. It was it a TV did. show, and then they made the three movies. He also loved the California Raisins and had a T-shirt, which I sent to his baby this month, and that kid's wearing it That's already. right. We just uh, saw a picture of our grandson <laughs> with the California Raisins yeah. shirt that Ben had when he was a baby. That and was cool. And appropriately enough, he is in California. That's so, right. <laughs> so it works. All right, Marsh. All right. Who is the most portrayed literary human being? In film and TV. Who is the most portrayed yeah. human being in film or TV? I would say that's either Jesus Christ or Abraham Lincoln. 
because they both have had probably more books written about them than anything else. I would assume that translates into movies and, and other TV. imagery, media. Right. Yeah. Okay. Give me the answer. This is somebody we know very well. Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It is Sherlock Holmes. Okay. So I, it's the most, what was your the question again? The most human played character. In movies and TV. Human played. See, that's that's really dodgy there. Human yes. played character. Yeah. All right. So this is an invented human character. Yes. Okay. So it's Sherlock Holmes. All right. Our, our dear sweet man that we know the canon very well. That's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, Dracula is the most played character of all times, but they don't consider him a human. All right, Marcia. Here's my last one. Okay. What state has more cattle than people? Yet, beef is their top import. Well, really? Well, that's a, that takes me There's back. There's a conundrum. It is a conundrum. What state has more cattle than, than people, people, yet beef is their top import? Oh, my word. It's is not, it? Yeah, oh, good. Kansas, Missouri, no, no. South Dakota, or Nebraska? I wouldn't have, I was going to say Wyoming. Okay, tell me the state choices. Kansas, Missouri, South Dakota, or Nebraska? Nebraska. Kansas, Missouri, <laughs> South Dakota. No, it's not Nebraska. What is it? It's South Dakota. Even though South Dakota raises more cattle than it has people, its top import is bovine meat or beef. Now, why? This is because of a lack of processing capability. It's more cost-effective to export the state's oh. homegrown raw materials and import it back after packaging. Here comes the hamburger. In other words, all the slaughterhouses are out of state, so yeah. send the cows. Then they come back all Jeez. wrapped up. What would we do without your sound The farm-dominated state ranks low on the country's list of traders. It comes in at 48 of 53 exporting territories. So that's it. That's it. That's a that's the state with more cattle than people, yet beef is their top import. Well that that is an interesting fact. South Dakota. <laughs> that's also the site of the Corn Palace. Have you ever been there? No. It's actually pretty interesting. What is it? It's a building that's all decorated with different colors of corn. In different I, patterns and different like representing people's faces and stuff. I mean it's actual corn? The walls are corn. They're decorated like corn. With corn, actually, inside. So it's, it's corn. It's, they kernels? use it for they use it for conventions and things like that. I mean, but is it actual corn kernels? Good out? God, Marcia! No, it's not made of Legos or corn. It's <laughs> called the Corn Palace. It's decorated with corn. So it's corn kernels on the walls. I said on the walls. I didn't say it was don't, built. Don't they rot and oh drop my off? God. <laughs> I'm sure there are ways to preserve corn. Is this a family trip of yours? Uh, yes, it was one on. of the okay. trips. All I right. think it was 1960 or 63. My 63. family missed that one. <laughs> yes, they missed the Corn Palace. Well, the people in Mitchell, South Dakota, are very proud of the Corn Palace. Well, and good. rightly so. It's okay. quite interesting. I'm okay. telling you, authentically, it is an interesting thing I, I to stop you. and see. I believe you. So you go ahead and make fun I'm of other states. I'm not making fun. I, I just, Your state of Wisconsin's got a lot of things to laugh at, let me tell you. Lots of cheese on the wall. That's right. I just, the Cheese Palace in Wisconsin. <laughs> and I haven't seen that. Why don't we have a cheese palace? Because we're wearing it on our heads, Bob. Oh, that's right. We make clothing out of ours. Okay. All right. That's enough of that. Okay. Oh, okay. Time for my God. quote. All right. Your quote for the day. It's a quote by Ellen Brown, Bob. And she says, the difference between conscious and conscience is that conscious is when you are aware of something mm -hmm. and conscience is when you wish you weren't. 
Oh, conscience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wish you weren't aware of it. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And that's so the, your conscience. The N is what makes the difference. Yeah, there. And, ah. that, and it's hard to yeah, it's hard to say too. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And your well, you did it well. Conscious and, and conscience. conscience. Yeah. Conscience, that's the one that's got the, uh, uh, the, the consequences. Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, we hope you've had some guilty pleasures listening to our show today. <laughs> we hope we're one of your guilty pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> and that you join us next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia on The, the Off-Ramp. Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin. Visit us on the web at theofframp.show.